Hello and welcome to the 54th episode of Uncover True Crime. My name is Stephanie and in each episode we uncover a different unsolved true crime case, ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders and suspicious deaths. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and other podcast streaming apps, as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at uncover underscore pod, on Instagram at uncover true crime pod, and you can follow the uncover true crime discussion group on Facebook. As I'm sure you've noticed, I didn't do the usual intro that I normally do at the start of each episode. That is because today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Today I'm going to share with you the second episode of my new podcast, One Do at a Time. If this is not the sort of content you're into, I totally understand if you don't want to listen to this. I just wanted to give you a wee idea of what One Do at a Time is all about. The reason that I chose to share episodes two with you is because the second case that I'm going to talk about in today's episode is a case that we have already uncovered back in episode 31, the unsolved murder of Sam Doe. Some of you may know, some of you may not know, but last week Sam Doe was actually identified. So I thought that this would be a very fitting episode to share on Uncovered True Crime so that you could find out about how he was identified and his real name and the circumstances leading up to his disappearance. If you have already listened to episode 31, a lot of the same information will be repeated as I totally go over Sam's case again, but I don't go into quite as much detail as I did in the Uncovered True Crime episode. I also want to acknowledge the month-long break that I have taken from this podcast. It wasn't deliberate and I've only just realised right as I started recording this episode that it has been about a month since I have uploaded an episode, so I do apologise about that. As many of you know, I'm a single parent, I work full-time, this podcast is just a hobby that I do on the side. Sometimes things come up and I'm not able to release an episode as much as I would like to. That is why I scaled back to one episode every two weeks. So technically I have only missed one episode, but I still wanted to acknowledge it. Anyway, I'm going to stop yapping. Here is the second episode of One Do at a Time. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of One Do at a Time and thank you so much for tuning in. For anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast before, in each episode we discuss two cases. The first case is where the person is still unidentified and the second case is a person who used to be unidentified but has since been reunited with their true identity. Before we get into today's cases, I just want to let you know that I have created a Twitter and Instagram account for this podcast. The handle for both is just one do at a time, but I will leave it in the show notes of this episode and all future episodes. Sorry, another quick thing before we get into today's cases. As I was editing this, I realised that there is a little bit of background noise in this episode. My next door neighbour had someone over to her house and then was completing building work. My son is also in the other room. Today was the only opportunity I had to record this episode and I am a single parent, so things like this are going to happen, but thank you very much for your patience. Without any further ado, today we will be discussing Opal Doe and Gordon Edwin Sanderson. On the 28th of January 2012, a skull was found in a trailer park on Hurst Street in Opelika, Alabama. Upon further examination, it was concluded that the skull had belonged to an African-American female who was likely between three to seven years old when she was killed. 
Yes, I did say killed deliberately because police believe that the young girl was abused during her life, so her death is being treated as a homicide. If you feel this case may trigger you, I will leave a timestamp to the second case in the show notes so you don't have to listen to this part of the episode. As she was found in Opalika, I will refer to her as Opal or Opal Doe for the rest of the episode. I don't believe her full skull was ever recovered, just parts of her skull, and police believe this is because animals possibly carried the rest of the body away to a location still unknown. Police believe the opal had been dead for eight months to two years before she was discovered, meaning that she was probably killed somewhere between January 2010 and April 2011. Despite police only discovering Opal's partial remains, they were still able to create a composite sketch of what she may have looked like in life. No composite sketch will ever replace an actual photo of an unidentified person, but it is very rare that police will have a photo of these victims. But thankfully, this does seem to be one of those rare cases. In 2016, a woman saw Opal's composite sketch and was sure that she had met her at a vacation Bible school, which was held in the Greater Peace Church in Opelika in 2011. She was even able to source photos that were taken of her and they do bear a striking resemblance to Opal's composite. The most remarkable similarity between the two is the fact that Opal had some sort of injury or birth defect to her left eye, which the girl in the photos also had. Police released the photos to the public to see if they could find out the little girl's name, either to rule her out as being Opal Doe or so they could discover Opal Doe's real name, but there has never been any follow-up to this lead. I couldn't find a Greater Peace Church in Opelika on Google Maps, but I did find a Greater Peace Community Development Corporation, which is only a 40 to 50 minute walk from where Opal was found, so I believe this is possibly where the Bible school was back in 2011. Sadly, these Bible schools did not keep records of attendees and people could walk in and out as they pleased. And no one who attended the Bible school that summer can remember Opal's real name. If the girl in these photos is Opal Doe, it seems that she had a strong connection to Opalika, which is something that police already suspect, but I will get onto that a little bit later in the episode. During the examination of her remains, investigators found that Opal had been the victim of malnourishment and, quote, repeated physical abuse, unquote. She had several broken and fractured bones that had gone untreated, and as I mentioned earlier, she had an injury to her left eye, which is quite noticeable from photos provided by the Bible school and in the composites made of her. It is possible that she was blind in her left eye and that this injury was the result of abuse, or it could have been a birth defect, we just don't know. Due to the abuse she endured, police believe that she probably had an unkempt appearance and may have appeared quite sickly. The woman who believes she met Opal Doe at the Bible school did agree that she had an unkempt appearance and poor hygiene. However, this has been debated online, as in the photos from the Bible school, she doesn't appear to be unkempt. However, I do want to point out that it can be kind of hard to tell these things from photos, and it is possible that a volunteer maybe helped her fix her hair and her clothing to make her appear more presentable. Opal's teeth were also underdeveloped, and it's possible that they may have pointed out awkwardly. Composite photos of her show that she did not have her two front teeth, but due to her presumed age, it is very possible they just hadn't grown in yet. Opal may also have struggled to socialise with others, which does match the description that volunteers at the Bible school gave police about the young girl who attended in the summer of 2011. The FBI got involved in Opal's case and her remains were sent to their lab in Quantico, 
where they conducted isotope testing to try and determine where she was from. I want to point out right now that this type of testing isn't always accurate and I don't think it should be taken as gospel. Nonetheless, the test showed that Opal was probably from Alabama or another southern US state such as Georgia, Mississippi or Florida. I stated earlier that police believe Opalika was more than just a place to dump her body and that the person or people who killed Opal probably had a connection to the area. Opalika is quite a small city and in 2011 it was home to around 27,000 people, meaning that if Opal was from that area she probably would have been identified by now because I struggle to fathom how no one in the area would have recognised her. I'm also sure that as part of their investigation, police would have contacted social services in the area to see if they knew who she was, as it is likely that Opal would have been known to social services. Although, as we all know, there are children who sadly fall through the net. Perhaps she was from another part of Alabama and her parent or guardian had visited Opelika to visit family, which is how she ended up at the Bible school. And when she died, whoever was responsible chose to place her body somewhere that was familiar to them. Apparently, the part of the trailer park where Opal was found was pretty obscure and would have been an ideal place to dump a body as it probably wouldn't have been discovered for a few months, which is exactly what happened. To me, this shows that whoever put her there knew this area very well, the trailer park in particular. So while Opal might not have been from Opalika, I do believe that the truth about her true identity and her murder lies within the city. Namus have only been able to rule out one person as being Opal Doe and that person is Angelica Livingston who was a seven-year-old girl who went missing with her grandmother Portia Johnson in South Carolina in 2006. Portia's boyfriend Kevin Lynch was convicted of their murders but their bodies have never been found. In October 2019, Opelika resident Alexis Manifield gave a plaque to the local police thanking them for their hard work in trying to identify Opal Doe. The plaque reads, quote, But Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19.14 Baby Jane Doe, January 28, 2012 Unquote. This really is a heartbreaking case and Opal deserved so much better in her short life. As like all the Jane and John Doe's that we discuss, I really hope that she is identified soon. I'm now going to go over her description and please share her case, especially if you live in Opelika or Alabama. Opal's partial remains were found on the 1700 block of Hurst Road in a trailer park on the 28th of January 2012. She was an African-American female and had likely died somewhere between eight months to two years before her death, although the photos from the Bible school were taken in the summer of 2011, so if they are of her, she was likely killed shortly after attending the Bible school. She was between three to seven years old, meaning that she was probably born between 2004 and 2008. As only her skull has been recovered, please do not know her weight or height, although as she was malnourished, she probably would have been quite small for her age. Opal had medium length black hair which had tight curls. She had an injury or birth defect to her left eye which could have affected her sight in that eye. She was also the victim of physical abuse and her death is being investigated as a homicide. She was probably from Alabama or another neighbouring state such as Georgia, Mississippi or Florida. There is currently a $20,000 reward for information leading to Opal's identity and the conviction of her killer. If you have any information on her case, please call the Opelika Police Department Investigations Division on 334 
705-5220 or you can call the Secret Witness Hotline on 334-745-8665. I will of course leave all that information in the show notes of this episode. We are now going to talk about the case of George Sanderson. On the 13th of April 1977 in Tofield, Alberta, Canada, a man looking for a pump for his septic tank ventured into a nearby abandoned farm. When he opened the septic tank on the property, he found a shoe and was horrified when he realised it was attached to a human body. The RCMP came to the scene and investigated, but on initial inspection, they couldn't tell if the body was that of a man or a woman. The body was covered in quicklime, which police believe was done in an effort to make the body decompose quicker, but this is a myth. All quicklime does when mixed with water is create superficial burns on the skin, and it probably preserves the body a little bit. The autopsy revealed that the body was male, so he was given the nickname Sam Doe, although because of where he was found, media reports often refer to him as Septic Tank Sam, which I personally think is in very poor taste. Sam's death was nothing short of horrific. He'd been sexually mutilated, shot twice and burned. Sam had likely died 3-12 to months before his discovery and it is only by sheer chance that he was found when he was because he could have gone years without being discovered. This led police to believe that Sam's killers probably knew Tofield very well for them to know to dispose of his body there. Sam Doe was thought to be Caucasian with Native American ancestry, was probably between 26 to 40 years old, stood between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 7, weighed between 145 to 165 pounds and had a medium build. He was wearing a blue Levi's shirt with popper buttons, a grey t-shirt, blue jeans, grey woolen socks and brown imitation wallaby boots. Police thought there was a possibility that he was a migrant worker and wasn't originally from the Toefield or Alberta area, which would have made it that much harder for them to identify him. As Sam clearly had received dental treatment during his life and he had pretty good oral hygiene, police thought they might be able to identify him through dental records, but no records they compared to his matched. They also believed that Sam had some kind of illness around the age of five years old, but police never expanded on this, so few leads came from this piece of information. It's very sad when people who suffer such a horrific death can't even be given a proper burial, and as Sam went unidentified for over four decades, he was eventually buried in an unmarked grave. Many people thought that his case would never be solved and we would never find out his true identity, but thankfully they were all wrong. In 2019, a partial DNA sample from Sam Doe, which had been obtained in 2012, was entered into Canada's national DNA programme, but nothing came back. The RCMP's missing persons unit then contacted Othram, a company that specialises in identifying Jane and John Doe's, to see if they could help identify him. It had been pretty hard to obtain a DNA sample from Sam due to the condition of his body when he was found, but Othram worked their magic and were able to create a full DNA sample to work with. They then used genetic genealogy to create a family tree based off distant relatives they were able to find, and were eventually able to narrow it down until they found a woman called Joyce Sanderson, who had reported her brother missing in the early 80s. DNA tests were done and on the 30th of June 2021, the Alberta RCMP announced that they had identified Sam Doe and that his real name was Gordon Edwin Sanderson, known to his family and friends as Gordy. 
Gordy was born on the 22nd of October 1950 and grew up in Edmonton, Canada. Gordon and his family were victims of the 60s scoop, which was a multitude of policies enacted by child welfare agencies that led to thousands of Native and Indigenous children being taken unjustly from their parents and adopted by white couples in Canada and America. Gordy was placed into foster care when he was nine and suffered from substance abuse issues as an adult, which led to him getting in trouble with the police. He was last seen in 1976 and was going to visit his brother in Calgary, but never made it there. One thing that stuck out to me about this detail is that Calgary is 186 miles south of Edmonton, but Tofield is 42 miles east of Edmonton. So either he was killed en route to Calgary and his killer or killers travelled to Tofield to dispose of his body, or he never got a chance to leave Edmonton before he was killed. Personally, I am leaning towards the latter. Police believe that he was likely killed by people he knew who were involved in criminal activity in Edmonton, and while his murder case is still open, some police officers are not hopeful that they will bring his killer or killers to justice. RCMP Sergeant Ed Lambert said, quote, How are you going to punish the guy now anyway? You going to send an 82-year-old guy to jail now? What do you do to an 82-year-old man who killed someone 50 years ago? Unquote. I think the answer to that question is fairly obvious. There is no statute of limitations on murder, so you would prosecute them. Gordy's murder was brutal and I would be very surprised if this was the first or last murder that they committed. Whoever did this to him was clearly very dangerous and while it is possible that the person or persons responsible for his murder are now dead, there is also a chance that they aren't and they should still be punished for what they did. Gordy had a daughter and a sister who are both still alive today and I can't imagine how hard it must have been for them to not only go 44 years without knowing what happened to him but to then find out that he was murdered in such a brutal way. I think David Mittelman, the CEO of Authorum, summed up well when he said, quote, It was exciting to know also that his sister was alive, so she was able to receive in her lifetime an answer to what happened to her brother. He was a young guy and his life was cut short. I'm glad they shared his photo because it reminds you that these are not statistics or scientific data points. They are real people with actual stories behind them. Unquote. When we look at Jane and John Doe cases, we see vital statistics, height, weight, eye colour, etc. But it's quite fascinating, in my opinion, to see the composite images made of them compared to their real-life image. Gordon had quite a bit of facial hair in the photos publicly available of him, which he had either shaven off before his death, or the digital composite just didn't account for it. Also, the digital composite was in black and white, and due to the condition Gordon's body was found in, it probably would have been quite hard to make a composite of him. However, there are a lot of accuracies in it, I think. Gordon is thought to have been 26 years old when he died, which is the youngest age the RCMP estimated him to be. Police also suspected that he was Native American, which was also correct. One thing they did get wrong is that police didn't think that he was from the Alberta area, but he only lived 46 miles away from where his body was found. Apparently, police did not see the connection between Gordon's missing persons report and Sam Doe's case. Media reports state that when Gordon was reported missing in the early 80s after his sister wanted to make sure he was okay after not hearing from him for years, 
Police didn't really take it seriously and it is not known what happened to his missing persons report. Unfortunately, this happens all too often with missing persons, especially when that missing person is native. And had they taken his case more seriously and his report been filed properly, I think there is a very good chance that he would have been identified decades ago. Rest in peace, Gordon. I hope that one day you will receive justice. This is a case that has stuck with me for a long time, which is why I covered it over on my other podcast, Uncover True Crime, back when he was unidentified. In that episode, I stated that it is important not to lose hope in cases as old as this one, as many people believed he would be forever unidentified, and I am so happy that they were wrong, and that he finally has his name back. Thank you for listening to the two cases that we covered today. The next episode of the podcast will be released on the 30th of July and I do hope that you come back to listen to these stories so we can spread awareness to these cases one door at a time. See you next time. Are you all my personal dreams?